Welcome to the Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we're not going to focus on all those new shiny, shiny things for you to buy. Instead, we focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and a happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London that we call Restart Parties are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter and I'm joined by Ugo Valauri. We're co-founders. Yeah. And today we're joined by Restart volunteer and green ninja Dave Lukes. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) So um, this week we thought we would wade into some kind of slightly well how can we say future future present technical not technical issues about software and hardware um last week we aired our podcast about updates and um while we definitely did address bad software updates and how they cause uh, some anxiety and annoyance um the general gist of the podcast may was kind of like okay so how can how can updates can be good for us and why they're potentially necessary a lot of the time. But we got a comment from a volunteer who took us to task a little bit. <laughs> so Toshi wrote um, on our on the podcast online, he wrote, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> um, security updates apply to broke, so go ahead and do it. But he's he encouraged us definitely not to to put everything all in the same bundle. So um, we, and he kind of, he's in a sense anti-upgrade, I would say, in, in the way that if it's not broken, don't go ahead and up, upgrade, update, would you say, Hugo? Well, I'd say that he makes a very good point, except we don't know exactly what security flaws a lot of the software we might be using might have. And, exactly. And so it, it can't be all good or bad. Yeah. Um, so we don't necessarily fully agree with Toshi's very, very cautious take. Um, although, interestingly, we just saw the cover of Witch magazine this month, a big consumer magazine, questioning precisely whether software updates are always good. And um, actually, the point there, which Toshi makes uh, very well, is often we are told to upgrade to, say, the brand new version of Windows, which is not the same thing as applying a security update to the one you already have. And when you do that, you end up with likely a slower laptop and you feel like you might need to upgrade to a new hardware. While security stuff doesn't require you to have a brand new version of the operating system. And so it's important to understand the options yeah i mean i think people sit along some kind of spectrum i mean like so we wouldn't necessarily fully agree that all um updates are if they're not security related are bad i mean sometimes there are good new features that come however it really is important for us to keep a critical attitude and mind towards this and especially because everything in our lives is very much powered by software much of that software is designed and owned by manufacturers, from cars to coffee machines. And um, this week, a couple of stories came to light that really had us considering more deeply the age we live in and how software can potentially be used to kill hardware or enforce obsolescence at scale. So some of these stories were extremely timely this week. Um, We're going to go on a bit of a a hypothetical journey into a possible age of the remote kill switch. (laughs) And if that sounds too sci-fi or too (coughs) obscure, we're just going to start right away with these two examples that came to our attention. Um, The first was a story about HP 
and an update it pushed out for its printers. Um, uh, Dave, do you want to explain what, what this was all about? Okay, um, on September the 13th, um, not a Friday, by the way, um, suddenly many people around the world reported that HP, certain models of HP printer stopped accepting non-HP ink cartridges. In other words, they would report the cartridges as failed, not working, whatever. And these were cartridges that were already installed in the printers that had been printing pages previously. Correct. Yeah. And the odd thing about this is that there had been no software updates from HP since, I believe, March. So what this means is, yes, it was HP admitted a software update caused this problem, but it was what you call a submarine update. In other words, it was up, installed on the printers in March... And it's another story about how does software get installed on printers. But so this software did nothing in March, and then suddenly on September the 13th, non-HP cartridges stopped working. You've got to question why they did it exactly that way. Yeah, and um, there's there was quite a bit of uproar uh, about this online, um, partly because uh, a couple of big activists uh, on in the internet world, including Cory Doctorow from Boing Boing, um, took up the cause, and and uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation in the U.S. got involved um, already. There's a petition about it, um, and so this was particularly, in a sense. I don't know, provocative in the sense that yeah. it's a it's a functionality of a, of 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 a printer that let's say that would be sitting in a home. Someone felt like they bought it and they felt like they had the control over it to to source ink from wherever they cho- chose. And all of a sudden, that functionality is killed off. Yeah, and also point to emphasize here is they didn't just kill it off straight away. They sent out an update which apparently didn't kill it off. And then a few months later, it starts killing it off. So they did that in a sense to, well, to disguise well, disguise it? or Exactly. We, because that's what we can infer. Yeah, if you think about it, if people had started noticing their HP printers stopped working in March, they'd all switch them off and take them offline and somehow worked out ways to stop that update happening. But instead, nothing happens until September. Suddenly in September, it's too late. Your printer already has the new firmware installed on it and it stops working. Now, what can you do at that point? And I guess the point is it's been known for ages that manufacturers try to discourage you from using um, refurbished uh, or non-official cartridges, saying that it might spoil the quality of the print or the actual reduce the lifespan of the printer. And it's up to you to decide which direction you're leaning forward. But here it's about the freedom to make that decision once you own 100% that printer. Those printers are not printers that are leased to people these are printers that people own 100% and they should be free well, to do okay. something with them so this, we're going to get to this later but this 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 uh, phenomenon really does raise some questions about what it means to own a piece of hardware um, which brings me to the next story that caught our attention um, which is a piece of uh, uh, consumer electronics that has been very much in the news recently and all for the wrong reasons. The uh, Samsung Note 7, which was um, which was brought out before the iPhone 7, um, but mm-hmm. has been basically has suffered from massive problems with the engineering of the batteries in them. And uh, a number of people have been hurt with them exploding. Um, this has been all 
unless you've been hiding under a rock, <laughs> you you've heard of this. So that, um, but there were some rumors that were circulating that Samsung, because people were not uh, responding, owners of the Note Seven were not responding to their pleas to to bring them back, um, to recall them, that Samsung could actually remotely send out an update to potentially even disable or kill the Note 7s to prevent people from getting injured. Now, this was a rumor that circulated in the U.S. Um, however, in Korea, Samsung did actually push out an update that uh, brought down the maximum uh, charge that, that the battery of the phone could ever, could ever uh, reach. So, Dave, what's your comment on, on this story? Well, this, there's a lot of things here. Firstly, was that sent out without the owners, was that update explicit? In other words, did the update say, we're going to cut your battery capacity by 40%, do you mind? Or did they just send out an update surreptitiously that, you know, like the HP? So there's a question about user control here. Now, admittedly, this is an extreme case because most people don't want their phone exploding. So you could argue that Samsung were being yeah. a benevolent dictator in this case. But it does seem a bit creepy that they sent out this update Without telling anybody. Well, also that it, I mean, and people have been complaining across the world that they've been just essentially they've, and it, it probably has to do with legal reasons, but they've been acting differently around the world. So in each country, they've dealt mm -hmm. with the recall in a different way, um, which is in some way, okay, it's, it's, it makes sense because every country has its own laws. But, uh, but yeah, it raises, for me, it raises really fascinating questions about it, it's that the remote kill switch is real, you know, in a sense that. It, the fact that it is even a possibility that a manufacturer could push out an update to kill off a device that, that is a rumor and that um, or they've killed off part of the functionality yeah. of the device in one country. This is a, this is not sci-fi. This is actually w within reach. Um, By the way, yeah, a little interjection here. For those of you who've got either Android or Apple phones, uh, in case you haven't noticed, there is functionality there to find your lo your phone when it's lost and disable it. That is effectively a kill switch already. It exists. And, of course, if they can do it, then some hacker can do it as well. So, sorry, that stuff already exists, Janet. Yeah, I guess the scale aspect is what's fascinating yeah. to me. I guess also the issue of whether, in this case, Samsung has pushed an update that people have to accept or rather it's installed automatically without people Good having question. to agree at all. I, I haven't fully understood how this update that limits, say, the maximum battery capacity actually operates. But so there, normally we, there's the notion that people have to accept. And so in some way, there's still a little bit of control. Mm -hmm. um, you can say no, but what if you can't say no? And in this case, it's probably good given that the battery could explode, but it raises a lot of questions about future futures of devices. Okay, so we've been talking um, in rather generic terms about uh, software that drives hardware. And um, obviously, uh, your printer is different from your mobile, is different from your coffee machine. <laughs> so, Dave, can you explain to us um, the different kinds of software that power different kinds of hardware? So, when we were referring to the printer, back in the day, we referred to printer drivers, which I assume means the software with which your computer talks to your printer and gets it to do stuff. Stuff, correct. Correct. Okay. So that that we're all familiar with, even those of us who are, you know, who've using jet printers since forever. <laughs> um, but you mentioned that this printer, this HP printer, had its own 
it's, firmware. It's on firmware, right. So can you explain what firmware is? Okay, in the same way that, for instance, your phone nowadays is really a computer with some extra hardware on there to make it into a phone. It has its own operating system like a computer. And in the same way your printer is as well. Your printer actually has a computer in there that's doing all the complicated stuff. All the imaging, running that nice fancy little screen it has on it, all that stuff, is all done by a computer. Now, for convenience, in the case of both phones and printers we and other devices like that, we refer to the software that runs on those as firmware. Okay. If you like, because it's firm within the device, it's fixed in the device. It's embedded, yeah. Exactly. And that would be the same for, like, your coffee machine, your smart coffee machine, correct? Your car, your, all those things, yeah. yeah. They have yeah. firmware in them. But really, it's just another kind of software. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah, so you mentioned that, uh, like, in a mobile, we have l- we have quite a bit of software. Is is oh, it yeah. fair to say that the more complex a device is, the more chips, the more complexity within it, the more layers of software it will require to, yep. to, to operate? Totally, yeah. You, As I said, most of these things these days, actually, the so-called firmware is really an operating system, so there's not that much difference between your desktop and your coffee machine anymore. They both... If you think about it, you now have network coffee machines and even network toasters, I'm told. I don't know if that's actually true or just a rumor. But yeah, I feel like that the network toaster is like a urban legend, the Internet of Things there urban are legend. Cer- yeah, there are certainly Internet fridges, for instance. Yes, yeah, we've seen those. Okay, so if you think about those things, those things are all connected to the Internet. They have to speak the same kind of Internet talk that other devices talk. For instance, Internet fridges have a web server on them. Right, so you can talk to that and find out what's in the fridge and stuff like that. Okay, so you skipped a little bit ahead because I was going to ask, you know, so we've had for quite a while, we've had devices that are run by software. Um, But I guess what I'm really interested in this in this conversation today is what's new about the age we live in. Um, And you mentioned connectivity and the network. Um, Can you explain like so what this what the risks and well the opportunities that it brings? Well. The opportunities are kind of obvious. Isn't it great that, you know, your phone can talk to the internet? You know, I can be walking down the street browsing the web. Now, if you think about that, it's mind-blowing, especially for people of a certain age. The idea that you can have the whole world of knowledge in your hand, that's amazing. Okay, but what about my coffee machine? Like, why do you know, but, yeah. yes, but, but let's give us a positive, um, like, benefit sure. of having a connected coffee machine. Well, <laughs> that's kind of harder, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's a gimmick. Right. Most people don't need a connected coffee machine. What can you do with that? Well, presumably, you can connect to it from the web somehow on your phone and tell it to make coffee for you ready for when you go home. Okay, but let's, okay, but devil's advocate, let's imagine that there's some flaw in the firmware of the coffee machine at when uh-huh. it was shipped. Yep. Okay. And then a manufacturer wants to go ahead and fix that flaw. Yeah, they have to be able to update the firmware in your coffee machine over the internet. Okay, so there is a potential, potentially remote case in which, yeah, some, yeah, sometimes it's good to have these gadgets communicating. And and that used to be the case also before they were connected. Some devices, I remember some, uh, you know, like set-up box for TV that was didn't have a Wi-Fi card or any Ethernet connectivity. You could download a new version of the firmware that would fix, say access to some channels that previously you couldn't tune in uh, mm. for whatever reason and you put it on a USB stick 
and you do whatever you need to do, but the device still does not communicate to the internet. So once you install it, whatever you do with it, it's still your own 100% private experience. But the issue comes when there is a way for the device to connect to the internet at its own leisure, most likely, not just mm -hmm. so that you can update the software, but it can connect back and share a lot of more information. Of course, yeah, and lots of devices you will most of us let's be honest when we when we accept the terms and conditions for some new device we just blindly tick it and we don't read the small print where it says that it will send back information to the manufacturer to improve the user experience or some such right yeah yeah okay so i mean i'm i'm not very good at playing the devil's advocate obviously but there are okay potentially some ways in which it's good to have things connected <laughs> You're listening to Restart Radio on 104.4 Resonance. Um, so I, I did a potentially poor job of, of playing devil's <laughs> advocate and defending connected devices. And now for the hacking section of, uh -huh. the, of this episode. So another thing that caught our attention this week was, and we're a little bit late in watching potentially, was the uh, second season of Mr. Robot, which is a show about some, uh, we can say, very noble but potentially troubled hackers. <laughs> and they, they go and they hack a smart home. They take over a smartphone, a home of one of these kind of evil corporate types. And it's a very compelling kind of 21st century horror scene in a sense. Um, and at one point, uh, the character who's been hacked is on the, I guess, on her mobile trying to get help. And she says, you can't hear the help, but she says disconnect what it's all in the walls. You know, it's, it's so, um, what opportunity, like risks come with all of these oh. connected gadgets? So the fact that all of our gadgets are running the software and that most of them now are connected, what risks do we face now, Dave? Well, there's firstly the risk to privacy. For those of you who don't already know this, um, if you've got, for instance, a virus on your PC, hackers could do terrible things, switch on your webcam in fact, what? We, we saw we saw an example of this uh in our last restart party somebody who'd had their webcam hacked and it was really quite disturbing i have to say yeah yeah uh, that's just one example um another kind of scary example is that you can have your um they what they call these zombie armies they can zombify your PC and make it do what they want to do. Or your old router. I mean, you mentioned an example um, of that. Your in old internet routers, which aren't securely set up, they're another example. And ultimately, any internet-connected device. Every piece of software has flaws. That's the fact. You know, this stuff is too damn complicated these days. That's why there are so many security updates. So ultimately, there will always be some way for a hacker to get into your device. And apart from being cautious and applying, applying security updates as soon as possible, there's not much you can do apart from unplugging them. And if you have your device connected to the internet and it has back doors into it, as they call them, ways of, for hackers to get into it, then it can be subverted and used, for instance, to send spam emails, um, launch distributed denial of service, DDoS attacks on people. And there's been an example very recently where um, an IT security writer had his website attacked. Massive attack. 
And from what they can work out, it was basically a bunch of internet routers and stuff like that. So, so hackers had basically taken control of other hardware that weren't even computers. Yeah. And, and turned them against this uh, yeah. IT security blogger. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the hacking is, 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 is one part of it. I guess when I started thinking about hacking, I thought, okay, the flip side of hacking is can, can we as users, as owners of hardware, can we, can we theoretically reverse engineer some of this or create our own custom versions of firmware and software so that, so that we can take back control of the actual thing that we thought that we owned, that we bought? So um, could, you, could you kind of talk about that? <laughs> yeah, sure. In theory, it's possible. For instance, uh, Cyanogen, for those of you who have Android phones, many years ago, somebody took part of the Android operating system and produced a completely open version of that. So no proprietary stuff in there at all. So theoretically, you could take your Android phone, put a lookalike operating system on there, which you controlled. But the problem with this is that doesn't give you everything that Android does because bits of Android, such as the, uh, the Google Play Store, various um, encrypted video playback for digital DRM, that kind of stuff, that stuff you can't duplicate very easily. And if you try, then various people will go after you for copyright violation, etc., or patent violation. So, And I guess... Also, we don't really know how the manufacturers will always respond um, in some cases. Um, there's, I believe there is an alternative firmware for a Canon camera, a digital camera. And yep. Canon kind of uh, was interesting. They kind of turned, it somewhat turned a blind eye. They kind of let it be known that it, they weren't going to do anything about an alternative firmware for their camera. But very few manufacturers take that line, I would say. What, 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 what do you think, Ugo? I think that... Like the the sensible approach would be that when a manufacturer stops supporting officially a product, and what I mean with that is making sure that the software works and that the functionalities it shipped with are going just fine, then they let other people continue to support it, so that firmwares like the one you mentioned for for Canon cameras can thrive in an open way. But more often than not, we see companies still interested in a more linear approach where the push to reduce support or interrupt support is linked to a push to get people to buy the new thing. So in a sense, mm -hmm. in some cases, and Apple has been accused of doing that um, many, many times for kind of ultimately making the device the last final update they do to software will make your existing iOS device very slow, kind of mm -hmm. unbearably so, and you can't reverse any of these updates, which is partly the problem. If only people could say, okay, okay, I installed this update, but actually I have the right to uninstall it, yeah. that will solve a lot of these problems, including the HP printer. I mean, this is yeah. partly the issue. You cannot decide to undo certain things. And why is that? That's a big question. But uh, So there are no libraries? I'm just asking as a very a naive uh, user. There's no libraries where you could potentially get older versions of, of firmware and kind of roll back. So it, it could be a very complicated answer, but to, to make it um, easy and short... Often it's impossible to reinstall an old version of a, 
software for for a phone uh, because the manufacturer limits the window of activation of a specific version to a certain time. So after X day, you can no longer install and activate a certain version of the operating mm-hmm. system. So they, it's probably possible for some mm-hmm. people who are jailbreaking, as it says, um, as it's called, uh, their device, but it's not really something that has mass appeal. Okay, so we're pretty far from a time when users can kind of maintain their own firmwares and cut it and customize them and uh, we're far from that time also there are issues around security so imagine we do create our own you know super uh, customized versions of things I suppose there are security issues there and mm-hmm. in a sense the manufacturer has a duty to solve those for devices using their own firmware but not for third Indeed. party versions yeah. I mean, I guess for computers, there's been a lot more uh, of a community helping people to do that at scale with uh, free and open source software. So all kinds of Linux distributions and people compiling versions of the kernel. uh, So the very low end part of the software that a machine uses to improve on battery life or reduce other problems of compatibility but still, this is not something that the average computer user can do comfortably. And yeah. So, well, and not to mention this just long tail of, of connected devices that we were just mentioning. I mean, you know, how are we going to create a community around one model of coffee machine, you know, to maintain the firmware for that one coffee machine after the mm. manufacturer <clears throat> gives up? That is still seemingly quite far away. And there is a trade-off there, again, because on the one hand more diversity of hardware manufacturers would seem to be a good idea. But the extreme diversity of devices linked to Android, for example, means that the whole security updates and non-security updates is extremely fragmented and you can't really create a focus community with so many different devices that operate differently. Wow. So um, I'm getting a rather you know, kind of dark vibe of uh, armies of, of, of rooters being taken over to attack uh, bloggers and in the future. Um, and when we look over to the U.S., we don't necessarily see, um, we see we're scared by what we see. There are a number of um, battles underway around what's called DRM and digital rights management uh, law and how that may be applied to firmware precisely. So how different forms of copyright can be applied to firmware and prevent people from um, hacking, tinkering, and fixing things. And in the U.S., um, the, the people speaking out most about this are the Electronic Frontier Foundation and iFixit, our friends who, who have repair guides on their website. And um, I believe it was recently that, within the past two years at least, that, that Kyle, who um, the founder of iFixit, wrote a wrote a blistering piece about uh, John Deere, the tractor maker, and how they were essentially locking farmers out of their tractors. Um, farmers thought that they owned tractors, um, but uh, firmware, software, reared its ugly head and prevented mm-hmm. them from fixing. Um, and I think part of the reason that the tractors were so such a emotive symbol is precisely because they, we have this notion that farmers are you know the ultimate tinkerers, you know they they live off on their own, they live off the land. Um, 
And I just wanted to read really quickly from uh, after Kyle wrote that op-ed, John Deere wrote a very terse response to him, um, which he summarized. Uh, you know what? I'm not even going to read the legalese. He summarized as, um, uh, to sum up, farmers sort of own their tractors, just not the part that actually makes the tractor work. As John Deere points out, and he quotes, Similar to a car or computer, ownership of equipment does not include the right to copy, modify, or distribute software that is embedded in that equipment. A purchaser may own a book, but he, she does not have the right to copy the book to modify the book. <laughs> End quote. Except that you do have the right to modify your copy of a book. If you didn't, every single owner of a dog-eared, scrawled-in, highlighted novel would be in prison for copyright violation right now. So Kyle says, thanks, John Deere, for making my point. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to close it there. We don't have time to go into the UK context at the moment, and it's extremely complex. We hope we'll do another episode about that. Um, Ugo, tell us about coming, coming events. So on a positive note, this weekend is the restart weekend takeover of Somerset House Treasury Space as part of Utopia 2016. So on Saturday, we're hosting a restart party 2 to 5 p.m. at Somerset House. And on Friday and Sunday, still in the afternoon, you can come and see the community as well. So please find out more on our website and on Somerset House website. Thank you. Yeah, we're on the restartproject.org and you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, you've been listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. And thanks to Optinoise and Cassini Sound for the music. Yeah.